0: Welcome to another episode of the Inspire to Fire podcast. My name is Chris and I'm your host. This show is all about inspiring you towards financial independence. I myself am on this journey as well. So together, we learn the keys for financial success. Every episode, I invite amazing guests to share their story. And today, we have Paula Pant from AffordAnything.com. We're going to be going over some interesting things such as exploring an alternative definition of financial independence. A lot of us in the FIRE community are familiar with the traditional definition of financial independence, which is 25 times your annual expenses, meaning once you've accumulated 25 times the amount that you spend a year, you are able to withdraw 4% at a safe withdrawal rate, uh, which is things that we've gone over with JL Collins, for example, or Jeremy from Personal Finance Club but we will definitely dive more into that into future episodes. But that is the traditional definition for financial independence. However, Paula has a different definition for financial independence and one that I actually agree with more. So I'm excited to share that with you. She's also going to be getting into her 1% challenge, which I think is amazing. It's a way to save more slowly, but effectively. So I can't wait to share this with you. Paula always brings quality, to anything she does, and you can see it in her podcast, you can see it in her blog, even her emails, which I've subscribed to. I know what type of person she is. She's financially independent, she's built a business, and that's why I'm excited to have her on the show. But real quick, right before we get into that, there's a couple things that I wanted to mention. First, if my voice sounds different, it's because I finally upgraded. The audio should be sounding a lot better, so hopefully you'll enjoy it. Unfortunately, I didn't have the microphone when I interviewed Paula. However, in a couple of episodes, that audio should align. I'll be using this new microphone, which is hopefully better audio quality. And the other thing I wanted to get into was I wanted to read one podcast review that just jumped out at me, and and I really appreciate it. Any review that I receive is absolutely appreciated. So if you haven't reviewed this show and subscribed, please do that. That shows me that you're getting value from the show, which I really appreciate, and and that's what I do this for. So this podcast review is from Iman Rashid, and she writes, getting your life on track, simple. Chris provides such a great intro and understanding of fire and how you get your life on track to achieve your personal and financial goals. As a rising college freshman, I am now more conscious about all financial decisions I need to make to reach a point in my life where I can focus more and do what I like to do amazing show and its website complements all that you learn thanks Chris for sharing with everybody no thank you Iman and if you want to support the show I'd really appreciate it again subscribe and leave a review a couple minutes but it makes my day all right so without further ado we're going to get into our episode with Paula Pant so Paula welcome to the show Hey, Paula, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you on, and I'm super excited to share this episode with the audience. How are you today?
1: I'm excellent. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing well, as well as we can be doing in this crazy 2020 year of ours.
1: I know, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I think, I think any, anyone who answered... In the year 2020, the answer to the question, how are you doing, has just <laughs> got to be like, well, I made it another day. You know, right, right. like emotionally, psychologically, like I, I'm, I'm one day at a time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, this is a, an awesome day to have you on the show and share um, your journey and what you can bring to the audience in terms of financial independence. So I'm excited. And so this show is all about financial independence. I love to talk to people about where they're, you know, if they're starting their journey, when they're, they're on their journey or mm-hmm. if they've reached financial independence um, usually that would mean that you've reached the standard normal definition of 25 times your annual expenses which mm-hmm. is what buyer number is um, but you have an alternative definition that think you think would more accurately describe financial independence is that right
1: yeah, I do. So first of all, the, the reason that I don't like the 25x your annual expenses or, or any number x your annual expenses, the reason that I don't like that framework is because your annual expenses are going to change throughout your life. Um, and sometimes that'll be as a result of choice or preference. Sometimes that'll be as a result of necessity. Um, your medical bills might rise, your family might grow or shrink even Even something as simple as the property taxes where you live might spike yeah I mean anything um in, including things that are outside of your control can cause your expenses to change either to increase or decrease. you know a lot of people mistakenly assume that expenses only go up over the course of a person's life, but of course that's not true. they go up, they go down, maybe you have certain medical bills right now that you won't have in the future maybe you um you know, I mean, lots of things can happen, right? So Mm -hmm. the the notion, if, if a person pegs financial independence to their expenses at this point in time, this point in time is simply, if you think of like a graph of your life, this is literal, this current point in time is just a random data point on like the graph of expenses over your life. So why would you pick one random data point over any other one? It, it doesn't really make any sense to me. And, yeah. and given that expenses are always in flux, what that means is that um, rather than trying to create the sense of FI out of some um, false precision, you know, I think, I think a more apt definition of FI, is having enough money that it could create a basic safety net underneath you, because sort of what, what people refer to as lean fi. Um, having enough money that you could have at a minimum a lean fi lifestyle um, if you needed to, and that doesn't mean that you have to live a lean fi lifestyle, but you could. You essentially, I see fi as as a safety net. Like we live if. If you live in the United States, you live in a nation where there's not much of a social safety net. So I see FI as you building that safety net for yourself, regardless of whether or not you choose to ever fall back onto that safety net. You at least have it constructed.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and I think it makes a lot of sense because um, from what from your website, it you know what if I could read it actually it says financial independence is the state in which your potential Passive income, typically through investments, is enough that you could make decisions from a place of hope and desire rather than fear or obligation. Exactly, exactly. So, and so, I, yeah.
1: Um, if if you don't mind, I'll break that down a little bit. Mm-hmm. So the reason that I say, <clears throat> um, so the reason that I say financial independence is when your potential passive income. The reason that I use the word potential there is because you might have set up streams of passive income that you don't, that you reinvest, you know, that you don't harvest. So for example, if you have a whole bunch of index funds, but you're not drawing down on those index funds at a 4% rate or a 3% rate, you are just re allowing them to reinvest and continue growing. Well, you have the potential passive income from them, but you're not harvesting that. Similarly, if you have rental properties and you're not harvesting That rent money to live on, you're just reinvesting the rent money. Again, you have potential passive income, but a lot of times, people, especially people who are outside of the fire movement, um, you know, they're really surprised when they find out that you might have rental income that you're not living on, and they're like, "Wait, whoa, what do you mean?" (laughs) And it's funny because like nobody is shocked if you have index fund dividends that you're not living on. So, but all of a sudden, you transfer that same mentality to a different asset class and the expectations change, which is, yeah. which is strange. <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah. uh, so, so that's why I say potential passive income. Like there is no requirement that you're harvesting that passive income. You can certainly reinvest it. There's you're, you're not, you're not not fi for if you choose to reinvest your, your gains. Mm-hmm. Um, so potential passive income. And then I say typically through investments, because in the fi community that that's, you know, how anecdotally, that's how I've seen the majority of people derive their passive income, but it doesn't necessarily have to be through investments. It could be uh, through a business that you own. Um, so for example, let's say that you own uh, a bunch of vending machines or you own a bunch of laundromats and you have managers who manage the day-to-day of it and you receive residual income from that, you know, that's that's an example of passive income that comes through a business that you own that is very hands off that other people manage. Mm-hmm. Um, anecdotally, that seems to happen less, but it's certainly a very viable way to reach FI.
0: Okay. So,
1: um, so typically through investments, and then is enough that you can make decisions from a place of like hope and an aspiration and desire rather than fear. The reason that I say that is because so many people, like the whole purpose of Phi is to be able to have the freedom to do what you want to do without worrying about keeping the lights on or keeping food in the fridge. And that's, I think, a very different purpose than... um, you know how the how the outside world seems to know it, which is the outside world seems to conflate it with retirement, mm-hmm. and so the outside world oftentimes says like, "Well, well, why would you want to retire? Like, I don't want to s- sit around playing golf and drinking martinis all day. <laughs> like, I'd like to do something more with my life than just that." Um, and I absolutely agree. And the thing is, when we look at people who we conventionally view as quote unquote rich, such as Warren Buffett, Mark Zuckerberg, J Lo, Beyonce—you um, know—I'm—I don't know their spending habits, but I would assume that they are fi. Like they probably have enough money that they don't have to work in order to keep the lights on. Like Warren Buffett is not showing up to work every day because he's worried about paying his electricity bill. Um, he's doing it because he loves it. He's doing it because that's what he enjoys thinking about. Yep. Yep. And, uh, and, and I think that that is, you know, that's really what we're all trying to achieve. It's not quote unquote retirement. It's doing what you want, uh, having the freedom to do what you want, knowing that if, even if a, a worst case scenario were to come to pass, even if hypothetically there were to be a deadly virus that creates a worldwide pandemic that shuts everything down, <laughs> um, hypothetically, <laughs> you know?
0: <laughs> Yeah. Um in a strange world. Yeah.
1: I know that's a far-fetched example, but it could happen. <laughs> you know, hypothetically even if there were a pandemic and all of a sudden your uh, you know, your your income were to collapse, you know, you would still be okay. You might not be going to restaurants, you might not be traveling. Um you might have to live uh, you know, move out of your luxury condo and live in a place where you have white appliances rather than stainless steel appliances. Yeah. But like if that's the worst thing that happens to you, you'll be fine. Yeah. You know?
0: And and I think that is super powerful because um a lot of people get caught up with the fire movement and they focus on that R E and they just and that that to me kills me when I see somebody make that argument and it kind of just Uh, takes the focus away from what I feel like is really important. And -hmm. they focus on not wanting to, you know, why would I want to retire at 40? I want to do more and et cetera, like you just mentioned. So it's more than just that. And I wish that fire, well, yeah, yeah, I wish there was more focus on that FI like you're placing um, in this example. Um, And then you, so you were, you practice what you preached in that sense, and you decided to take that, into your own life, design your own life in that way, um, mm-hmm. become, put yourself in a place of financial power. Um, so how did you start? Like, what's your journey like? And what would you give, uh, what type of advice would you give our audience in terms of starting from from the very beginning? Sure.
1: Well, so I, I sort of accidentally built FI before I really even knew what the concept was. Um, again, because I wasn't thinking about quote unquote retirement, and I wasn't aiming for some, you know, like an arbitrary metric, like 25x my expenses, I was just, I was coming from a place where I was just thinking about building a safety net for myself. Um, And so, so my journey, I finished college, I graduated from college in 2005. And I went to work, um, my first job out of college, and my only job, uh, as it turned out, um, only time working for somebody else as a as a full time W two employee. Um, I worked for a, a newspaper, so I became a newspaper reporter straight out of college. Uh, it was a very sm- it was not impressive. It was a very small newspaper. We had a circulation of forty thousand readers, um, and uh, my my starting salary was twenty one thousand dollars per year. Um, that was in two, it's in $2005. So I think that'd be the equivalent of making like maybe $25,000, 26000 today. Okay. Um,
0: yeah. Just adjusting it a little bit, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, living on, on a salary of $21,000 a year, um, I basically, I lived on that salary and then I started freelancing during the evenings and weekends and I saved every single penny of my freelance money. So I lived on my full-time salary, I saved all of my side hustle income. Um, and I did that for three years. And over the span of those three years, I also got a I, I got a raise and a promotion. Um, and so I became the assistant news editor. Um, I think was my title at the time that I left the paper and I made a salary of 31,000 big bucks. (laughs) Um, and so 2000, April of 2008, I quit. That was when I quit the newspaper and my salary at at the time that I quit was 31,000. And that was the most I've ever made working for somebody else. Mm -hmm. Um, but during those three years, I saved all of my side hustle income. And so I saved $25,000 over the span of three years. That was all from side hustling. Um, and I quit my job in April of 2008 and I went to go travel. Um, I bought a one-way plane ticket to Cairo, Egypt, and then I just started backpacking. I spent six weeks in Egypt. I went to Israel, I went to India, Nepal, and then I, I did the Southeast Asia loop. So I hung out in Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, um, you know, just traveled, uh, yeah, traveled to quite a bit of places, um, I made it work living on a budget of about $1,000 a month, 1000 U.S. dollars a month. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was largely possible by spending most of my time in places where the U.S. dollar went a lot further, like spending most of my time in places like Laos and Cambodia mm-hmm. um, and not moving around too much, you know, because tr- the transit itself is expensive. But I would go to one place and find a, a hostel where – you know um accommodation was five dollars a night or seven dollars a night and uh you know, and then just and spend the next two weeks there, like hiking and reading books and and just kind of hanging out yeah. and so as I was doing that, um, I was reflecting a lot on what I wanted to do with my life because in the years that I spent at the newspaper i I came to realize that that newspapers uh were a declining industry. Um, I was apparently the last person to get that memo, (laughs) but you know, it was, it became like in the three years that I spent writing at a newspaper, it became very clear to me that, um, I, even though I love the newspaper business, I had definitely entered it in the wrong decade. Um, if I had, you know, gone into the journalism business in the seventies, I probably would have made very different decisions, but, uh, you know it it became clear to me like newspapers across the nation were shutting down the ones that remained open were all on hiring freezes. like there was just no real future in that in that career and uh, And I realized that if I wanted to stay tangentially in the world of journalism, my future was going to have to be freelance and online, and that meant that I was going to have to be self- employed um and and I I liked that idea a lot because that gave me location independence, it gave me geographic mobility, it gave me the ability to set my own hours um, um but I also knew that inherently self employment was risky and that there would be a lot of income volatility um and and natural ups and downs but and I also knew that I certainly had higher income potential doing it because um you know, as I said, when I was working full time I was making you know, as little as 21,000 a year. But when I was freelancing, I was making up to uh, 50 cents a word, you know, so I could spend two hours writing a 300 word article and make $150 from that. So that's $75 an hour. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, on an hourly basis, the money that I had made as a freelancer, I could see had much greater income potential. So essentially what I saw was that the world of self-employment gave me higher income potential, more opportunity, you know, like basically bigger and better upside reward, but it also came with a lot more income volatility. Right. And so the reason that I began making investments was because I wanted to build some type of safety net underneath me. I wanted to create some basic passive income such that in the course of, like, natural, normal, like, income volatility that comes from self-employment, I would have something coming in. You know, mm-hmm. I would have $500 or $1,000 or $2,000 or, you know. Um, and so that was, that was what I started doing. When I came back to the United States, I threw myself into becoming, a like, a, a full-time freelance writer. And um, – and from the time that I came back to the u s which was in the spring of 2010, um that was when I started taking it taking freelancing seriously and really applying myself to doing it full time. And from the time I began taking it seriously, it took me about eighteen months before i began before I had my first five figure month um, before nice. my first uh month in which my gross income was was north of ten thousand mm-hmm. so but it was, it was slow getting there. Like the first few months were, you know, I was making $2,000 a month, $3,000 a month, um, you know, cobbling together like, uh, you know, $200 here, $500 there from all of these like random article assignments. Um, so, yeah, it definitely took me eight, 18 months of, of grueling work to be able to, to, take, to take off on that. Um, and so while all of this was going on, I was renting, um, so I was living in a three-bedroom apartment with, there were a total of five of us um, living in a three-bedroom apartment. So myself and my uh, partner at the time were sharing a room and then there was another couple sharing another room and there was one single person. So all of us were all roommates and all of us as roommates were sharing this three-bedroom apartment and this apartment was inside of a triplex and so my share of the rent was $200 like because five of us were splitting the rent mm-hmm. and there was also a triplex across the street that was for sale and so um, my partner at the time he and I um, we, were, we realized that if we bought that triplex across the street um, we and all of our roommates could move ourselves into one of the units and then we could rent out the other units and we could get our own rent down to zero, you know, which like my rent, I mean, I was paying $200 a month in rent. So like my aspirations at the time were simply <laughs> to like get rid of my $200 a month rent payment, you know?
0: And and so was this before the concept of house hacking? It seems like what you did there was house hacking. Is that right? Yeah,
1: yeah, it was. But I had never heard that word before. So it was... Years later that I, I learned that the word for that is house hacking.
0: <laughs> cool, cool. <laughs> and, um, and it also seems as though you were able to position yourself uh, to start your business from a place of low expenses. Or yeah. you tried to keep it as low as possible because it's really tough to start your own business when your expenses are a certain level because, as you mentioned, the income volatil- volatility um, mm-hmm. just doesn't provide that security that you need.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So at the time that I came back to the US and started my business, um so my rent was 200 a month. Um I had a car, the car was worth about $1500 or so, but it was paid free and clear, my $1500 car like nice. ha- had it in cash. <laughs> um the car that I had a quick tangent, the car that I had before that was $400. And when I tell people that, they're like, "You mean it was four hundred a month?" And I'm like, "No, no, no, I mean it was four hundred dollars total."
0: <laughs> wow! And, it, uh, and it The ran, asking it, price
1: was four hundred and fifty, but I got fifty bucks knocked off.
0: There you go. Nice. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so yeah, so I had a car that was you know more than three times, ta- almost four times more expensive than my last one. <laughs> That's crazy. At, yeah, at my fifteen hundred dollar car. So yeah, so Talk yeah, about so luxury. i, I I drove this $1,500 car that, that I had free and clear, and then my rent was $200 a month. And then besides that, um, health insurance, which was, at the time, I was paying like $120 a month. like That was um, before the ACA, so I was just buying an individual plan on the open market, and it was a catastrophe-only plan. So once the ACA started, health insurance rose. Now I'm paying like 300 ish a month for it, mm-hmm. but at the time, it was about 120 a month. And then groceries, and that was it, really. Um, Yeah, those are like my four big bills. I guess utilities. Yeah. Um, But utilities, I was splitting five ways.
0: (laughs) Well, and the story that you tell me, or or your your uh, story, just makes sense that you're such a great writer. You know, you're talking about being in the newspaper industry. Um, I've read some of your blog uh, posts, and they're fantastic. So. Um, Can you talk to me about building that passive income as a writer? Um, I know it could be done in several different ways, but um, you particularly did it as a freelance writer and you talk a lot about on your blog articles about not competing on price necessarily, more Mm -hmm. of quality and finding your own niche. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that can be applied to many different skills and anyone who's trying to be an entrepreneur. Um, So how did you go about doing that exactly?
1: Oh, so big time. So the first thing that I would say is that oftentimes people have this limiting belief that writer is synonymous with doesn't make much. And and, and I think that's true of a lot of creative pursuits like artists, you know. Um, it, people see it as synonymous with not making very much money. And that is the first idea that has got to fly out the window because um, – like like i said it it took about eighteen months to get there, but after about eighteen months, I started making five figures per month um, so I became in in about two to two and a half years it, like that was when I had my first six figure full six figure year you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and and a lot of people are shocked by that like you know a lot of people are like, "How do you make six figures as a freelance writer right. but the the way that I did it was um that I specialized in a particular niche, because if I, I knew that if I tried to write about anything, then I would ultimately write about nothing. Um, If I'm just a person who is, you know, who, like whose claim to fame is that I think I can write, um, that's not really a specialization. Like there's nothing that makes me unique if, if that's all that I have to offer. But if I have specialized knowledge in a particular topic or area, then, then that becomes unique because there are a lot of people who know about topic X and there are a lot of people who are good writers, but there are very few people who know about a given topic and also are good writers like there are very few people who are at the venn diagram intersection of those two skills Mm -hmm. and so that's why i encourage anybody who in any entrepreneurial career or venture to like narrow down and find a niche because um there's that expression the riches are in the niches like when you specialize at the intersection of a you know of of a couple of different things that becomes your unique point so I spent some time trying to figure out what I wanted to specialize in. Like, I thought, well, maybe I'll be a wine writer. Um, you know, maybe I'll I, – like, I spent some time trying to figure out what that topic was going to be. And I had a mentor that I'd met at a journalism conference who told me, you know, write about whatever you love to read the most. And – as nerdy as it sounds, ever since I was in high school, my favorite magazine was always Money Magazine. Um, like I've always loved reading about personal finance. I read The Millionaire Next Door when I was in high school, um, and uh, and I've just I've always loved the topic. And so I thought, well, if this is naturally what I love to read about the most, then this is what I'll write about.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so I started. Um, I started by writing a guest post for budgets are oh, nice. Oh, um, Jay money, huh? Jay money. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, I guess that was like my first, you know, it was so incremental. Like I wrote a guest post for him. And then I went to, uh, this website about.com, which was owned by the New York times. It's now referred to as the they've rebranded, yeah. but, uh, at the time, they were about.com. They were owned by the New York Times. So I applied to be their budgeting and personal finance expert. And as my, like, clip that I sent in, I sent them um, the article that I'd published on Budgets Are Sexy. I sent them a PDF of that article. And, and based on that, plus another guest post that I wrote for, uh, for another personal finance blogger um, who I don't think even exists anymore, faithinfinance.com. Um based on like those two guest posts that I'd written for two blogs, they hired me on as the budgeting and personal finance expert. Cool. And then once I had that under my belt, like once I could say that I was the personal finance expert for this this entity that was owned by the New York Times, that opened the doors to getting um, writing assignments from you know AOL Daily Finance and just a, a whole bunch of other publications. But then the... The real money ended up coming from getting hired by small businesses that needed content on their websites. So like, if you think of, um, you know, imagine an accounting firm um, based in Kansas City or based in Milwaukee, right? That is like a small accounting firm that has maybe two or three or four people working there. Mm-hmm. Um they have a website they need content on it so that they can be found through search engines mm-hmm. um so they they need some content but they themselves are like accountants running their small business they don't have time to be writing blog articles so yeah. um but they're like too small of a business to hire a full-time writer in house so they want to outsource that um that was where the real money came from because once i i started getting those types of jobs and I began writing for um, like CFPs, Certified Financial Planners, um, who needed content for their website. I began writing for um, FinTech companies, so like financial technology startup companies that needed content for their websites. And they were almost all very small companies, fewer than 10 employees. A lot of them were fewer than five employees. A lot, Many of them were even partnerships. Mm-hmm. Um, so like very, very small companies that needed web content, didn't want to do it in-house, um, you know, didn't have the resources to do it in-house, they needed to outsource that. That became like the real bread and butter of my operation. And eventually I started getting so many gigs like that, that I couldn't do all of the writing myself. I couldn't do like both the management and the making. So then I began hiring writers to work under me and sort of transitioned from being a freelance writer to running a content marketing and management company. So. Wow.
0: Yeah, and it, yeah. it seems like it's snowballed from there. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm glad you brought up uh, Budgets Are Sexy because I hope to have Jay Money on the show soon as well. And he's just an example of what consistency can do. I mean, he's yeah. had his blog for how long? And I think he recently sold it, but he, yeah. he had it for years and he was one of the first ones to start it. Um, so I think that that mirrors your example as well is that you know, I'm sure all those breaks in, on the way that got it to that point um, was, you know, prefaced with a bunch of work and, and consistency and working on what you felt your strength was, you know, improving upon that. And not a lot of people will see that consistent effort that you've put in, but then they'll see the end result of you've built your business and the success, mm-hmm. you know. So I yeah. thought I thought that was important. The fact that you highlighted that, um, and oh, then trans you. transitioning into just uh, how do you apply that in everyday life, like marginal gains. Um, mm-hmm. You do talk about the little things that you can do every single day that'll just get you to a better place. Can you expand upon that for us?
1: Yeah, you know, a big part of my philosophy is is to be one percent better. And so, like when I started blogging about personal finance, a lot of people would say like. I just can't save any more money. Um, and so my challenge to them was, all right, tr- what? regardless of whatever your savings rate, it, rate is right now, just try to improve it by 1% per month. And that means for every $1,000 per month that you bring home, save an extra $10. So if you bring home $2,000 a month, save an extra $20 this month. You know, if you bring home... $6,000 a month, save 60 bucks this month, an extra 60 bucks above and beyond what you're currently saving. Mm-hmm. And that, like when you frame it like that, it, that feels very doable. You know, like, oh, okay, yeah, of course I can find an extra 20 bucks a month. You Definitely, know? yeah. Yeah, um, and so, so you start by increasing your savings rate by an extra 1% this month, and then next month you do it again, and then the next month you do it again, and if you do that consistently over the span of a year, by the end of the year you're saving an extra twelve percent above and beyond where you were when the year began. Hmm. And and given that the average American savings rate is what somewhere around four, four, th- three, four, five percent, some somewhere in there.
0: Yeah, too low sometimes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Like, given that that's the average American savings rate, even if you're starting at zero, even if on January 1st, you are saving 0% of your income, if you by December 31st are saving 12%, you're doing three times better than the average American, you know? And and if you do it for two years and at the end of year two, you're saving 24% of your income, like, wow, that's, Mm -hmm. you know, that's incredible. Mm -hmm. But it happens in those 1% increments
0: and and i love that challenge i think that challenge has gotten a lot of traction for your audience they they seem to really pick up on that
1: yeah yeah absolutely Bec- because i think because it takes away um it takes away the the internal restriction or the internal resistance you know if you tell people oftentimes if you tell people to do something drastic right out of the gate mm-hmm. you know if you're like hey have you have you thought about Um, never going to a restaurant again, you know, like, (laughs) I mean, it, that it's so drastic. It's such a lifestyle change that oftentimes people, you know, it's easy to conflate. I, I can't with, I don't want to. Um, and so people oftentimes can get stuck in the, in the, I can't, but it's not for, in a lot of cases, it's not that you can't, it's that you choose not to or that you don't want to. Yeah. But if you frame it as a 1% improvement, that's so small. It's such a, you know, it, it's not an attack on your identity. It's not an attack on your habits or your lifestyle. It's just a tiny little tweak. Mm-hmm. You know, 20 bucks a month for every $2,000 per month that you bring home, that's a bottle of wine, you know. Um, that's like. If you have Hulu Plus and Netflix and HBO now, you know, that's saying like, all right, do I really need all three of those or can I just, just you know, cut down to like one?
0: Yeah, I'm, right. I'm
1: only gonna watch one at a time anyway.
0: <laughs> There's some overlap there. I would probably go for Netflix and that one. <laughs> <Netflix>. <laughs> um but yeah, I think that's so important. And and personally I didn't do the one percent challenge because I just wasn't aware of it, unfortunately. But for 401k contributions, I'm currently maxing out my 401k contributions, but I did not get there from one month to the next. I had to slowly start. I started at the match mm-hmm. and then 1% every year, or if I got a raise of 2%, I would just put that 2% in the, in the contribution nice. and slowly have gotten there. So that is what made it easier. In hindsight, I wish I just would have been able to max it out right out of the gate but our brain is, does not work like that sometimes. So I yeah. think that that's uh it's what helped me and I think it could help a lot of people as well. And if you were applying it to your 401k or the or your savings either way, um just getting 1% better at it, you know, in increments will will make a big difference in the long run.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I uh, a couple of things that I want to add is mm-hmm. First, when I, in the discussion that we've just been having, when I say save, I want to be clear that I define savings as anything that improves your net worth. So that could be literal savings in a savings account. It could be contributions to a retirement account. It could be money that you're setting aside for the down payment on a rental property, or it could be making payments towards a debt. Like if you're, accelerating the payments on your student loans or on your credit cards or your car loan or your mortgage, if you're accelerating those payments and and wiping that debt off, um, that is savings, you know, because it's an improvement in your net worth. Mm -hmm. So I would hear from a lot of uh, people in my audience, like podcast listeners who would say, oh, you know, I didn't, uh, I I wanted to take part in in this 1% challenge, but I wasn't able to save because I was paying off debt. And I'm like, whoa, What well, that means that you've saved. Like <laughs> anything that's an improvement in your net worth is savings. And so when you're paying down the principal on any debt that you have, that's savings.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's a key point because yeah. a lot of people will, will kind of confuse the two. Yeah. Um, and, and then talking about the savings in terms of marginal gains, I also know that there are big wins that you – Uh, or people are being told to to focus on in terms Mm of, you know, transportation or housing, things of that nature, your car. Well, that's transportation, I guess. But um, yeah, so how do you balance focusing on the big wins and then the the advice that people get sometimes are like, have your latte, you know, Yeah. have your latte. That's fine. Just focus on the housing. Um, But then there's this marginal gains concept of like, just that 1% makes a big difference as well. Yeah.
1: What do you think about that? Oh, I love the. So I love the the focus on the big three. So that the three biggest expenses, other than taxes, the three biggest expenses in in the life of an average American, are um, housing, food, and transportation. And so definitely, the big wins are if you keep those three expenses low. Um, you know, if you rent a significantly cheaper place than what you could afford, and, and like when people when people ask what can i afford to rent or what can i afford to buy by how much house can i afford what they really mean is how much do i qualify for and that's the first like connection i want to break mm-hmm. because how much you can afford is should not be set by the banks <laughs> and should not be set by like the leasing office if yeah. the leasing office says you qualify to lease you know an apartment that's up to this amount of money based on your income, like that doesn't mean you can afford it. It means you qualify for it, you know, but that doesn't make it a good idea. So, um, so the first thing I want to break is that whole notion that, that how much can I, how much house can I afford is the same thing as how much house do I qualify for? Um, and so if you live in less house than you qualify for a cheaper house than you qualify for, and um, you know, drive some a cheaper car uh, than you qualify for, or take public transportation if you live in a place that that has good public transit, which you know you may or may not, depending on where you live. Um, those are those are absolutely the big wins. And w- what's great about putting locking those big wins into place is that. Um, naturally over the span of your life, there will, there will just be like, spending is not clean. You know, there, sometimes there are expenses that come up that, um, uh, like, uh, for example, the other day I went to the grocery store and I bought this thing. This is such a stupid example, but like (laughs) I bought, I bought a jar of like, you know, this thing in a jar. And, um, then I got I, you know, I got back to my place and I realized I can't open this jar. Like I just, I can't, I I tried everything. I tried like all of the trick. I tried whacking the sides of it um, to try to break the vacuum seal. That didn't work. I tried running it under hot water. That didn't work. Tried cold water. I mean, I cannot get this darn thing open. And so then I had to go on Amazon and order a jar opener for $10, you know, that's being like shipped to an Amazon locker near me. And it's like just, you know, it's a $10 expense because uh, I'm going to need a jar opener because like <laughs> I just I like, my hands just can't open jars, you know, and like it's that's such a, a mundane, stupid example. But when stuff like that happens 10 times a month, well, that's $100. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so by focusing on the big wins, you give yourself the breathing room to be able to be okay with that kind of stuff. To be able to say like, look, I can't open a jar and that's fine. I'm just going to have to, you know, like I have the breathing room. I have the wiggle room to right. be able to, to, to get this thing.
0: Right, right. Um, and, you know, that was, a, that was definitely an interesting example. I love it though. <laughs> I will say my technique for opening a jar is flipping it uh, upside down and kind of smacking the bottom of it. So mm-hmm. you hear that air? I don't know if you tried that one yet. Oh
1: no, I didn't try that one. Yeah,
0: check that out. It might save you ten dollars in the future.
1: <laughs> nice.
0: <laughs> but um, but yeah, so that's that's great. I mean, you gotta focus on the big wins, of course, because that's where you can make the most impact. Um, but then that small, uh, the small wins, I think, should come from wherever you feel comfortable. um right. Don't don't deprive yourself of the small things if you're already making big changes. Is that what you think as well?
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and my concept of 1% better is not just savings, but like 1% improvements in all areas, all areas of your life. So if you have a side hustle, or if you're earning money on the side, like it could be a 1% improvement in the amount that you're making. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it could be picking up, you know, one extra project or one extra client um, do if, you know, dog walk, I was talking to a friend yesterday and because of the, she lives alone and because of the shutdown and, um, and quarantine, like she's been very lonely, you know, living by herself. She hasn't had much social interaction. And so, um, you know, I, I was at, I was like, why don't you get a dog? Like, maybe that will help you keep you company. And she was like, well, I can't, um, I, you know, I'm allergic to dogs, but we were, as we were chatting, she was like, maybe maybe I could walk dogs, you know, and that way she could be around dogs, you know, not enough that it would trigger an allergic reaction, but she could get a little bit more like social interaction. And also it would be a little side hustle for her as well, you know, make make some extra cash. So like that to me is a perfect example of a 1% improvement in your income um, you know, I, and I don't know if it's literally 1%, but you know, it's, it's that marginal improvement in your income. Maybe you're making an extra 30 bucks a week, but heck that's an extra 30 bucks a week. Yeah, um, yeah. and so the reason that I say that is because I don't, when, when people talk about 1% improvements, I don't want, I never want to encourage somebody to, to get so granular that the quest to save money comes at the expense of their time, their energy, or their sanity. You know, and I say that because I've been there and I've done that. Like I've gotten to the point where, you know, I'm like obsessively coupon clipping and stacking like the buy one, get ones on top of the manufacturer discounts, on top of the bulk deals. Like it's just, and it gets ridiculous. It gets to the point where, um, you know, you're living to save rather than living to live. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and at that point, you're really just chasing your tail. Like that, the, the incremental savings is coming at the cost of, of time, of mental bandwidth, like cognitive bandwidth. There's only so much of that that we have. We only have like our attention span only has the capacity for so much. And so it is, you know, counterproductive to trip over dollars in order to pick up pennies. Um, so when I say 1% improvement, I mean that not just in savings, but across the board, that 1% improvement in how you direct your time, your emotional bandwidth, your attention, um, all of those things. Like, you know, that that's where like the optimization can happen across all. And in order to balance optimization across all of those arenas, the, like that inherently requires finding balance.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I want to summarize it by kind of having you discuss the mind, the gap uh, phrase mm-hmm. that you talk about. Um, but real quick, before you get to that, I do want to emphasize that, you know, that 1% um, frugality or frugality, I guess, has its limits. And, and I want to share my story as well. I, I got to the point where, you know, I'm, I'm fairly comfortable but I was so obsessed, I guess you can say, with trying to find those savings because I felt like the lower my expenses would be, the quicker I would get to buy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so FI. So trying to find ways to save money on, on my water bill. And I said, well, what is this uh, military showers? And so, you know, it's when you turn off the water and mm-hmm. you soap up and then you turn back the water and then you, you know, rinse off and then you kind of um, you turn it back off real quick. So that, in theory, will save you. I don't know how many pennies a, a week or so, mm-hmm. but yeah, it hit me once I had a full hair of of shampoo, and I'm like, and I've got shampoo in my eyes. It's I'm in pain, and mm-hmm. I'm like, what am I doing? I you know this is something that after a long day of work, you enjoy your shower and yeah. uh, it's relaxation. So I can afford those nickels or dimes that I'm spending on that shower, and without uh, obviously uh, wasting too much water, but so that was a moment for me. And I, I think that everybody will eventually hit that moment
1: mm-hmm. if
0: they try to just focus on frugality and just trying to save as much as they can.
1: Yeah. You yeah. Know? That shower. I love the shower example because so what that brings to mind is um, the difference between automating or systematizing ways that you save money versus like manually doing it. So um like with a with shower example, I, I had this issue with the rental property that I bought where the water bill was just, it, it was like $300 a month, you know, for this triplex. It, it was super high. Mm-hmm. And so, but of course, I can't control the behavior of the tenants, but I can control the, the, the automation, the systems of the, of the home. And so what I did was I installed low flow shower heads Um, I put aerators on all of the taps and the toilets at the time that I owned the triplex at the time I bought it were five gallon flush. And so I replaced the toilets with like, I think 1.5 gallon flush or something like that. Um, And so uh, through those automations, through like aerators on the taps, low flow shower heads and water efficient toilets, um, that cut the water bill in half, it cut the water bill down to 150 a month. Mm-hmm. And, and the tenant's behavior is exactly the same. You know, their behavior didn't have to change at all. And so they get the same experience, like they can stand under the shower and, you know, as, as much as they want. <laughs> um, but because the, the systems are in place that naturally create that water reduction, you know, it happens automatically in the background without like cognitive notice of it. And I think that's such a perfect metaphor for like how to build savings into your life in a sustainable way. The more you systematize it, the more you make it invisible and you make it hum in the background without requiring a behavioral change, uh, the better.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That it's true. And um, that's, that was a moment for me. And then You know, it brings up like the light bulbs that I've uh, changed around my house. That's an area where changing the light bulbs to LED, Mm -hmm. I can use as much light as I want. It doesn't affect it. But in the background, I'm saving money. So all great examples. And and it's so true. So um, lastly, just to touch on and kind of bring everything together, um, if you can talk about Mind the Gap, what does that mean to you? And why is that something that you feel so strongly about? Mm -hmm.
1: Oh, so th- so. thank you for asking about that. So I, I love the notion of Mind the Gap. And it came about in the personal finance community. People often debate about whether it's more important to uh, earn more or save more. And there's sort of like the, the two warring factions of the, the fire community or the personal finance community. That's, you know, like uh, one side says, you know, uh, saving more is what's important because you can, you know, earning more, it, it's not what you earn, it's what you save. <laughs> and, and then the other side says like, no, you can't frugal your way to wealth. Um, Like y- y- it might be that you have an income, pro- you might not have a spending problem. You might have an income problem. And that's where we need a, you know, there's, there's unlimited upside there. And so you've got these like two divisions and Um, So I sat back and I thought, all right, what are we actually trying to get to? At the end of the day, what's the goal here? And the goal ultimately is to increase the gap between what you make and what you spend, right? And so that gap in between earnings and spending, that gap is what we'd refer to as savings. But I'm not using the word savings because savings implies frugality. Um, it implies cutting expenses. So, so, in, so remove the word savings and just think of it as the gap between what you make and what you spend. Mm-hmm. And the goal is to increase that gap. And there's two ways to do that. You could either earn more or you could spend less or a combination of the two. You know, but the, at, at the end of the day, it's growing the gap that matters.
0: Thank you for, for breaking that down. And Paula, you're a wealth of knowledge, so I really appreciate you joining the show. Um, is there anything that's coming up that you'd like to share with the audience?
1: Um, so I'd say the, the two big things. One is that I host the Afford Anything podcast, so I would definitely encourage people to check that out, um, hit subscribe, and, and subscribe to the, pod, the Afford Anything podcast. It's available anywhere where finer podcasts are downloaded. And then I have a free ebook. It's called Escape. And it is a, a book, it's about a 70-page book on uh, – it covers a lot of what we've talked about. It covers minding the gap um, and it covers how to, how to get out of debt, how to go out on an adventure, how to be more entrepreneurial, how to – basically how to live an unconventional, adventurous life that is debt-free and financially sound. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's totally free and you can download it at affordanything.com escape.
0: All right. Well, yeah, definitely check that book out. It's free, as she mentioned. So, I mean, you got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Um, thank you, Paula, once again for joining the show. It, it's been an absolute pleasure of mine. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Till next time. Take care. So I hope this episode was as useful to you as it was for me. If you would like to help the show, here's how you can do it. First, Subscribe and leave a review on any platform where you listen to the show. This will also enter you into our giveaway where I announce a winner each episode. Second, share this podcast with a friend. Lastly, you can help me continue to bring you amazing content by becoming a supporter of the show. There will be a link in the show notes below. That link takes you to anchor.fm forward slash inspire to fire forward slash support. And even a small contribution helps. As a thank you, I will send you all my fire resources and give you a shout out on the next episode. Until next time, thank you for listening and have a great day.